The Foundation hosts podcasts to encourage a lively exchange of ideas related to our mission. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the Foundation's positions, strategies, or opinions. Welcome to Robert Wood Johnson Foundation's Pioneering Ideas, a podcast for people interested in exploring cutting-edge ideas and emerging trends that can transform health and healthcare. I'm your host, Lori Melliker, a Senior Program Officer at the Foundation and Pioneer Team Director. Let's get started. In today's episode, we're talking about choice. Americans love choice, no question about it. We love that we can go online and sort through millions of shoes in our size to find just the right price-style combination for our feet. We love that we can have over 700 TV channels and the ability to record whatever we miss so that we can always be watching the thing that entertains us the most. We want to have hundreds of health insurance plans to choose from. We love choice. But do we really? I was on jury duty last week and I took the opportunity during my lunch break to go to a potbelly sandwich shop. I love potbelly sandwiches and I was really hungry so I was pretty excited for lunch. When I looked up at the board my heart sank. So many tempting choices and was I in an Italian mood or a veggie mood or was I in an Italian enough mood to justify the difference in calories? So finally I settled on a sandwich they call the Whacker. I was not convinced this was the right choice, but the choice was made, and so I felt some relief in that. And then I approached the bar to order. I'll take the whacker, I said, and then I started moving towards the cashier. Whoa, 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 the guy said. White bread or wheat bread? Toasted or cold? My heart sank again. Then, a list of condiments to choose from. Just put what you usually put on there, I said, and they said, you have to choose. Okay, well, just put what people usually choose. Again, no dice. Okay, just give me a little bit of everything except the onions. By the time I got my sandwich and I sat down to eat, I wasn't even hungry anymore. The stress of the choice I had just made about the least consequential part of my life meant that I was less hungry and less satisfied with my sandwich I had basically created than if someone had just given me a sandwich, any sandwich, when I was really hungry. Well, it turns out that I'm not alone. It turns out that it's more likely that though Americans love the idea of choice and hate the idea that we could lose choice, we often don't enjoy the choosing or the uncertainty about whether we've made the right choice. Welcome again to Pioneering Ideas. In this episode, we'll dig deeper into the topic of choice and just a few of its many implications for health and healthcare in this country. You'll hear from pioneering researchers like Barry Schwartz, a psychologist, economist, and author of The Paradox of Choice, and Sheena Yengar, author of The Art of Choosing, and professor at Columbia Business School. Reading their books and talking with these guys has changed the way I think about my own ability or inability to make effective decisions. It's also changing the way I think about a lot of strategies we employ here at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to help people achieve their own personal health goals and maximize the value of care they receive. We'll also hear from Rashika Fernandopule, a physician and social entrepreneur, with a story about how choosing empathy can fuel healthcare innovation. And finally, we'll hear from some students at Princeton University 
who remind us how important it is for young people who are passionate about creating a better world to choose careers in health and healthcare. But first, Barry Schwartz and the Paradox of Choice. Barry Schwartz is a psychologist, economist, and the Dorwin Cartwright Professor of Social Theory and Social Action at Swarthmore College. Though he can't possibly remember, his class was really popular. I was in Barry's Psych 101 class when I was a freshman in college. I recently had the chance to speak with him by phone. So I wonder if you could reflect a little bit about how choice overload affects the health of individuals. Well, there are two different ways to answer that question. One is choice overload will affect the health of individuals by affecting their own health decisions. Uh, That is, decisions about uh, when to see doctors, what to do with doctors' recommendations, and stuff like that. When you confront people with lots of options in that domain, they're going to postpone the decision uh, that they have to make, uh, or they're going to make uh, unwise decisions. There's also the possibility that if you actually... Uh, torture people with decisions that have nothing to do with health, Uh, the kind of negative emotional state that that creates, the consistent disappointment um, with every choice they make, is going to have effects on their emotional well-being, which we now have good reason to believe will have effects on, uh, on their health. You know, it'll suppress immune function. There's all kinds of evidence that affective states, emotional states, affect physical well-being, sometimes quite dramatically. Um, I'm more, you know, I feel more comfortable talking about, about the first thing, where you give people lots of choices and they don't choose at all or choose badly. But I suspect that the, uh, you know, if you bum people out enough with the decisions they make, it just uh, affects their general physical well-being. I wonder if you um, have any examples of choices that you or maybe someone that... Um you know, have had to make as a healthcare consumer and what kinds of insights you might be able to share based on that? Well, I've had a couple of decisions to make as a healthcare consumer having to do with whether or not I should take cholesterol-reducing medications or, or whether I should take blood, you know, blood pressure medications. I have marginally high cholesterol and marginally high uh, blood pressure. The last thing I want is to make those decisions. Uh, you know, the reason I go to the doctor is the doctor is supposed to be the expert. Um, I want a recommendation. I want an explanation for the recommendation, but I don't expect um, simply to be handed what the risks and benefits are uh, uh, and then have the decision put squarely in my lap. Um, but, but doctors are increasingly reluctant to make recommendations I think partly it's because the ethic of modern healthcare in the U.S. is this ethic of what's called patient autonomy, where you're not supposed to be paternalistic. You just lay out the data, and patients get to choose. There's good evidence this is not what people want. Uh, Sheena Iyengar did a study uh, comparing France and the U.S. with when parents ha- give birth to kids who have a horrible malformation that will certainly lead to death in a matter of days or at most weeks. And there's the question of, do you keep them on life support or don't you? And in the U.S., parents are given that choice. And in France, the doctors decide. And her interest is in what effect that has on the parents. The, the outcome is a foregone conclusion. The child will definitely 
not survive. U.S. parents suffer more with the death of the child and suffer longer than French parents do. And it's arguably because whatever decision they make, they now bear personal responsibility for the outcome. So, uh, you know, I didn't ha- happily, I, that, I didn't have that experience personally, but it's, it's a, a vivid example of what can happen when you just decide that choice is good, period. I've heard you talk about two different kinds of decision makers. Can you talk a little bit about maximizers and satisficers? Sure. This is a distinction that was initially made by a psychologist named Herb Simon half a century ago. Uh, Maximizers are out to find the best, to maximize utility, to maximize expected value. Whatever your goal is, if you're a maximizer, you want the best. A satisficer is just looking for good enough. Um, You have a threshold, a criterion of acceptability, and as long as something exceeds that criterion, you choose it. Simon's point was that we're not smart enough. No human being is smart enough to be a maximizer. It just takes too much work, too much information processing, too much information gathering. It's just not feasible. What I did is I extended it to suggest that not only do we not have the cognitive machinery, but we end up, if you're a maximizer, relentlessly searching for the best and often dissatisfied with very good results because you're not sure whether the very good result was the best result. So we developed a scale to distinguish maximizers from satisficers. Nobody's a maximizer about everything. And most people's intuitions are that it makes sense to be a maximizer about the important things, but not about the unimportant ones. So what breakfast cereal you buy isn't worth the effort of being a maximizer, but what doctor you go to is. Uh, This, I think, is almost certainly mistaken. It's not just about the importance of the decision. It's also about how different the candidates are from one another. You can kill yourself trying to decide who the best gastroenterologist is in the New York metropolitan area, and you'll die of stomach cancer before you choose a doctor. Because the difference is once you're operating at near the top of the curve of excellence, differences are so small that there, there's no reason to trust them. It's better to have a good enough doctor than it is to have the best doctor with this nagging doubt that maybe you don't have the best doctor. And if you're pursuing the best and you're not certain you have the best, then when the doctor asks you, exercise four times a week, change your diet, lose 30 pounds, quit smoking, stop drinking, you're less likely to be compliant with all those recommendations if you don't have complete confidence in the doctor. So, Barry, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. It's great to uh, renew our relationship after, my God, 25 years almost. Barry mentioned Sheena Ayengar, an author and professor at Columbia Business School. Sheena also talks about Barry's work in her book, The Art of Choosing. They each offer different pieces of the puzzle of how we approach choice and how choice affects our well-being. We recently had the privilege of hosting Sheena at the Foundation as part of our What's Next Health Conversations with Pioneers series. During her day here, she said something several times that's caused me to rethink how I organize my life as well as my work. She said, let most of your life be dictated by habit and save choice for the things that matter. Be choosy about choosing. This idea meshes well with other findings that are emerging about Americans' mental bandwidth and the effects of making too many decisions. 
decision fatigue appears to be a real thing. Why waste energy making decisions that don't matter, like what to order for lunch, at the risk of burning out and not being able to focus on weightier choices? Hmm, easier said than done. My colleague, Jody Struve, sat down with Sheena to talk about the role of choice in building a culture of health. Sheena, can you share a personal experience that has shaped the way you think about health? When I got pregnant, I became diabetic. And uh, overnight, all my eating habits came under question. You know, I was somebody who loved to eat hamburgers and cheesesteaks and pizza, and I always had a Coke handy, and, and suddenly all that had to get tossed out of the window, and I had to rethink what I ate from morning until night, and this was very stressful. It was actually a little bit traumatizing for me, um, and by the time the baby was born, it was funny. I found that my eating habits changed. So today, yes, I still appreciate a good burger, but I actually don't go to, I haven't gone to McDonald's in I don't know how many years. I very rarely drink a Coke. So I guess what I learned is that if you put yourself in a sort of no choice condition, you will change your habits and eventually it'll become a habit. Are there ways we can put ourselves in no-choice conditions that, you know, might not be as drastic as that situation you experienced that we could incorporate in our day-to-day -day lives? Well, I've never done that with health, but I do do it in other domains of my life. So, for example, I'll decide that a particular project must get done at work, and I'll come up with a deadline, and I'll state this deadline to everybody publicly, and now everybody is stuck and particularly I'm stuck, such that I would have to be embarrassed if I didn't come through. And I, I do that manipulation to myself all the time. Interesting. So the public component there plays an important role in sticking to that choice. Yeah, I find that if I don't put in the public component, it actually, I don't stick as well to the choice. So for example, I regularly swear up and down that I will, from now on, every single day, climb up the 17 flights of stairs to my apartment. And now it is true that, you know, once or twice a week I will indeed climb up the 17 flights of stairs, but I don't do it every day. And the fact that there isn't a public component to it makes it easier for me not to do it. And also, the public component in your work project is, is public, but other people are also, I imagine, dependent on your result. Absolutely. And, and so publicly proclaiming that you will climb the stairs, there might be embarrassment to deal with if you don't follow through or you know, other things, but people aren't dependent. If I had to climb the stairs every day with somebody, I'd be much more likely to do it because I wouldn't want to let that person down or be embarrassed by them picking on me and saying, oh, you're such a lazy bum. Actually, I found that the thing that affected my eating habits, more so than being told that you know desserts were bad for you, was when it became bad to be fat. And when all the other women around me didn't order dessert. Because once you, if you were to order the dessert, you'd be the loser. That cultural shift made a big difference. Now, you know, clearly there's some downsides to that cultural shift too, and I don't want to downplay those, but there is an upside to that as well. Thanks very much, Sheena. This was very insightful. 
Thank you. We've talked a lot in this episode about the power and the burden of choice. Now I want to share a story that looks at choice from a different perspective. A reminder that making choices from a place of compassion has the power to dramatically improve health outcomes. Rishika Fernandapule of Iora Health is a primary care physician turned social entrepreneur who received funding from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to create a new model of primary care. In his model, doctors can spend more time with patients and deliver more preventive and wellness care. Here's a story Rashika told at the Wired Data Life conference last fall about a patient of his named Dr. Edwin. So Mr. Edwin was a heavy porter in one of the casinos we work in, and, uh, and poor Mr. Edwin had end-stage renal disease, so it means he had to go to dialysis. So three times a week he went to a dialysis center, they plug him in, and he's got to sit there for three hours. Now the problem is poor Mr. Edwin also had a bad anxiety disorder, so he would every now and then wig out. I've got to get out of here, got to get out of here, Let un- unhook me, unhook me, and he's competent, so they have to do it. They unhook him, he goes home, guess what happens the next day? He is comes into the ER because he's got renal failure, right? He can't breathe, his potassium seven, he's got palpitations. They admit him, they do inpatient dialysis for two days. Uh, they give him a few tablets of Ativan and say, which is a, an anxiety drug, takes this next time. But he hates how it makes him feel, so he throws it away on the way out. This cycle happened 17 times a year before. $280,000 of healthcare costs, um, not counting, by the way, the dialysis, just from these hospitalizations. So, Again, came in, uh, the health coach selected for empathy. You know, Mr. Edwin, this must really feel awful. Yes, it really is. You know, is there anywhere else you feel this way? Well, sometimes when I'm at home, I feel like I've got to get up and move. The key question is, well, you're at home. Is there anything you can do to make you feel better? Oh, at home, I put my music on, and that calms me down. So she comes out, and we actually give our health coach a little budget to spend on patients. And the idea is you can spend some money on them if it'll help. I said, Doc, you know the budget? Um, can I buy one of those iPod things? So I said, sure. So we go on eBay, used iPod Shuffle, $45. I said, uh, what music does he like? Oh, he likes merengue. Well, tell the other girls to bring the merengue CDs in, a block out an hour, and you can download it. And so um, he does. She does. And then next week, Mr. Edwin comes in, and uh, we, we all go in his room, and we say, Mr. Edwin, you're our favorite patient, which we say after everyone. <laughs> um, and uh, we, uh, here's a gift from us to you. Yeah, put it in, press the button. Oh, it's my favorite song. Every time you go to dialysis, you play this and think of us. And for the next six months, no ER visits, right? This is a $45 iPod, saved $280,000. Why, um, why doesn't the system do it? Because there's no CPT billing code for buy iPod from eBay, right? And there's no CPT code for spend an hour downloading merengue onto said iPod, right? So the current system doesn't do it. And I think the difference in our practices is people feel like do whatever it takes to make that patient better. This is an important story in an era when we hear so much about the next technological breakthrough that promises to transform healthcare delivery. Because it's not about a healthcare breakthrough made possible by a new technology or an innovative procedure. It's a story about a physician who took the time to listen to his patient to figure out what motivated the patient, to figure out how to get his patient to make the right choice and to try something totally unconventional to see if it worked. Maybe you have a similar story about how you were able to influence the choices of another person in a way that improved their health, or maybe you were influenced by a creative strategy. If so, we'd love to hear about it. 
We need more people working in health and healthcare who choose this kind of compassion-fueled innovation, which is why I was so glad to introduce you to Aza Cohen and Justin Ziegler, two Princeton University students we met through a grant we made to Princeton's Keller Center, whose mission it is to educate leaders for a technology-driven society. The foundation is supporting the center to offer courses on healthcare entrepreneurship and to partner with the Woodrow Wilson School's Center for Health and Wellbeing on a global health policy scholars program. My colleague, Christine Nieves, spoke with Aza and Justin, who recently spent time on the front lines of New Jersey's healthcare system. Let's hear what they learned. Both of you are uh, in John Danner's class, and uh, it's the first time, I, I believe, in, in, in Princeton that there's a class being offered that focuses also on health innovation. So tell, mm-hmm. me, tell me more about the class. Um, so the class is uh, it's called Social Ventures to Address Global Health Challenges. Social Entrepreneurship colon Ventures to Address Global Health Challenges. <laughs> it's the longest name for a class that I have in my <laughs> The way he describes it is like two intertwining strands, one being social entrepreneurship and the other being um, health solutions. It's also been really interesting seeing how, you know, you can tweak a hospital system idea from India to Mexico or maybe even to Trenton and thinking about what are the solutions, you know, what are the solutions that work in a place and then kind of comparing scalability the feasibility of it, you know, if, if it works in this one tiny town, how is it going to work in a big city? Solutions that are good enough ideas should be able to be replicated. And we saw that with our own eyes, with um, looking at the Camden Coalition and the Trenton Health Team. If you can take the most dangerous, the poorest city in America and make it have the cheapest health care and the most accessible health care and really turn the city around, then you can apply this anywhere. So you mentioned Camden and Trenton. Can you tell me a little bit about your recent breakout trip? So when we were looking for a place to uh, do the healthcare trip, we were looking all across the U.S. We were thinking, oh, let's maybe do the Mayo Clinic, maybe the Cleveland Clinic. Oh, I heard great things about you know Denver and stuff they're doing there. But we really realized is we don't need to go on a plane, we don't need to drive anywhere because the healthcare problems and solutions are right in our backyard. They're here. They're in New Jersey. Were there things that uh, really surprised you or stood out to you? from your experiences in the trip. My understanding is that it was a week-long, different organizations, different institutions. Um, you saw a lot of poverty. You saw a lot of problems in the system. We got to visit the Trenton area soup kitchen. We got to visit the um, rescue mission, which is the homeless shelter in Trenton. We got to see the problem up close. Then we also got to see some of the solutions up close, which was really inspiring. Um, so for instance, in, in New Brunswick, um, which I sort of is one of the cities in New Jersey that's really doing well right now, we got to talk with the the New Brunswick Development Corporation, DEVCO, and they just set up this wellness center. And downstairs is a fresh grocer, which is the first grocery store to come into an urban center in New Jersey in, I think, two decades. And then above it, it's a fitness center. And it was amazing because you saw everybody using it. And it was, it was really inspiring to see that people are making you know, the healthiest choices. Thank you so much for coming and for sharing your perspective with us. Thank you for your time. It's been really fun. that's it for this episode of Pioneering Ideas. Thanks for choosing to join us, and I hope you liked it. If you did, this is our third episode of Pioneering Ideas. You can find the other two at rwjf.org slash podcast. On upcoming episodes, we'll dig into trends and ideas you might not immediately associate with health, 
like DIY technology and behavioral economics. We'll bring pioneering people and ideas from health and healthcare, together with those from non-health disciplines and experiences to learn, discover, and explore together. We're hoping that you listen, but also that you engage with us, challenge us, and share what you hear with others. Let us know what you liked, what you want to hear more or less of. We'll continue to evolve and experiment based on your feedback. To leave a comment or learn more about pioneering ideas we're supporting, please visit us online at rwjf.org slash podcast and twitter.com slash pioneer rwjf. That's P-I-O-N-E-E-R-R-W-J-F. Talk to you soon.